Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. One of Taiwan's most senior politicians has warned that a quasi-warlike situation is unfolding with China. Minister Chiu Tai-san, who heads Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council, says that the forces of the People's Republic of China are preparing to attack the island. Mr. Chiu is keen to share his message with policymakers in America. They're especially receptive since the Speaker of the US House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, visited Taiwan in the summer, much to China's disapproval. China regards Taiwan as a breakaway province to be reunited with the mainland peacefully if possible, but by force if necessary. America doesn't formally recognize Taiwan as a country, but is nevertheless its supporter. It recently agreed to sell a billion dollars worth of weapons to Taiwan. Well, I'm pleased to be joined on the podcast today by an expert on US foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific. He's Jacob Stokes, a fellow at the Indo-Pacific Security Programme at the Center for a New American Security, a think tank in Washington. Jacob, welcome to China in Context. Thank you for having me, Duncan. I'm a fan of the podcast and, and happy to join. Now, the head of Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council, Mr. Chiu, recently delivered a speech to your organization. Can you run through some of his main points with us, please? Absolutely. The speech was quite substantial and is worth reading or watching in full. And we have the complete video up on our website at cnas.org. But in short, the minister expressed deep concern about mainland China's growing campaign of military, economic, and political pressure against Taiwan. He expressed Taiwan's willingness to engage in talks with China, but not as a result of pressure, coercion, or at the price of upfront concessions from Taiwan. He also talked a little bit about Taiwan's role in the region and the world as a strong democracy and a high-tech economy. And he warned against the implications for the region and the world if China were allowed to take control of Taiwan through coercion or force. Well, Mr. Chiu recently said that he saw a quasi-warlike situation unfolding. Does he think it's getting worse? I think the perception in Taiwan and, and certainly in Washington here as well is that uh, tensions across the Taiwan Strait between China and Taiwan are getting worse, uh, in large part because uh, China has undertaken more military operations to try to put pressure uh, um, against Taiwan. In the wake of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit earlier in August, uh, China undertook an unprecedented series of military exercises. Uh, they went across four days. And they included uh, exercise zones all around Taiwan, including on the eastern or far side of Taiwan, on the uh, across from the Taiwan Strait. And they also included uh, missile launches from China's military, the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, that flew over Taiwan. And it included also more exercises that had uh, aircraft and uh, and naval vessels sail across what is known as the median line, which is basically a line drawn in the middle of the Taiwan Strait uh, that historically mainland Chinese forces have not operated uh, extensively on the other side of that line. So th there's some major changes to the status quo. Well, clearly it was a very serious situation. And the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, recently warned China that using force would be a serious mistake 
but it has used force, hasn't it? So what do you make of that warning? It was a warning, but it was also a statement of fact. Secretary Blinken was channeling a widespread concern that Beijing might convince itself for a variety of reasons that it could use force to achieve its goals at an acceptable cost. My sense is Secretary Blinken was trying to convey to China that despite the war in Ukraine, the United States and other like-minded countries, along with Taiwan itself, have both the resources and the will to impose huge costs on Beijing if China resorts to force. Secretary Blinken, I think, was essentially saying, don't get any ideas from Vladimir Putin or assume that the United States is distracted. There's also a worry in the United States and other capitals that China's leader, Xi Jinping, might be getting a distorted picture given that he's surrounded by a tight cabal of advisors who might have incentives to support his ambitions towards Taiwan and maybe even overestimate the PLA's readiness uh, to fight a war. There's concern that Xi could convince himself that a war against Taiwan would be quick, cheap, and easy. And so Washington and other partners want to convince Xi Jinping that it would in fact be the opposite. So not long after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taipei, the US State Department, headed by Antony Blinken, uh, announced the sale of more than a billion dollars worth of military equipment to Taiwan, um, including advanced missiles. Now, that sale can't actually go ahead until it's approved by Congress. What's the tone of the discussion on this issue in Washington at the moment? Well, that particular arms sale, like most arms sales to Taiwan, uh, is likely to sail through Congress. The focus of the conversation in Washington at the moment has really moved past whether the United States should sell additional arms to Taiwan. There's a consensus that we should, and we actually have obligations to do so under our Taiwan Relations Act. The questions are really about the what and the how. The United States wants to incentivize Taiwan to increase its own military spending, given the severity of the threat from China, and also move to what is called an asymmetric defense posture. That's one that's more focused on making a Chinese invasion harder rather than trying to match China's military, uh, the PLA, on a one-for-one -one basis. It's sort of what we see Ukrainian forces doing to Russian forces in Ukraine. There's also this, this question of whether the U.S. defense industry can produce enough of these types of weapons in a relevant time frame. Many of the ones we already had in stock are going to Ukraine, so they're essentially on back order. And so the question is, can we produce them fast enough and get them to Taiwan so that Taiwan is able to deter aggression from China more effectively? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I can imagine politicians in Washington saying the idea of sending missiles to Taiwan is popular, but they wouldn't expect to uh, check what's in the box. But, you know, there's another issue here, isn't there, which is sending missiles is relatively straightforward, but sending U.S. military personnel in a fighting capacity to Asia, that's a whole other issue, isn't it? I wonder how people feel about that as they consider the legacy of America's wars in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan and so on. Well, in general, there's fairly strong support for Taiwan among the American public to include coming to Taiwan's aid in a conflict and through other types of military support. Uh, but your uh, note about the concern in the American public regarding troops to Taiwan is reflected in, in polling that we've seen. So there was a poll from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs from last month that said in the event of a Chinese invasion of the island, 
that 76% of Americans would support imposing diplomatic and economic sanctions, 65% would support additional arms and military supplies to Taiwan's government, and 62% would support using the U.S. Navy to prevent Beijing's from imposing a blockade. At the same time, only 40% would support sending U.S. troops to Taiwan to help Taiwan's government defend the country against China. And any conflict over Taiwan would also look very different than the wars in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, mainly because a conflict uh, over Taiwan would be fought more in the seas and in the air, including around Taiwan, than on the island itself. Very interesting to get a flavor of public opinion, although I suppose that the decision on whether to send forces to Taiwan won't be made by a referendum, will it? Um, turning to another point, though, you've described the headquarters of China's communist leadership, the Zhongnanhai, that's uh, Beijing's equivalent of the Kremlin in Moscow, as a mostly black box. Interesting phrase, Jacob. Uh, I'm presuming that what you mean is that outsiders, especially Americans, can't guess the thoughts of the people who work there, including Xi Jinping. But surely you're in a position to make a more informed guess than most people. Um, after all, you were advisor to the White House and the US Congress. What I meant when I stated that governmental decision-making in China is often a black box is that while we often see outcomes or products of what the Chinese government does, we have much less knowledge about the process that led up to those decisions. There's simply very little transparency in the system. For example, Xi Jinping has been in office for almost a decade and has never given a press conference. We often lack a detailed understanding of the debates and power struggles that shape Chinese politics behind the scenes and in real time. That's a very interesting point. And uh, every year I look at the two sessions, which is the big political meeting that takes place normally in Beijing, although uh, it was uh, suspended um, uh, during the uh, COVID crisis. And you don't see um, lots of minutes of the committee meetings that take place there. You just find the uh, resolutions, which are then rubber stamped by the delegates. So there's definitely a lack of transparency in the way that the Chinese government reaches decisions. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Taiwan. Just going back to the politician who addressed your think tank, Mr. Chu, you mentioned that he was in favor of having a dialogue with China. I'm interested to know what you think he means by that, because at the moment there's a breakdown of communication between Taiwan's mainland affairs council and China's Taiwan affairs office. What problems do you think that could cause? Well, the reluctance to engage in dialogue really comes from Beijing's side. They're the ones who cut off uh, that dialogue. Beijing insists that the government in Taiwan accept what is known as the 1992 consensus, which was a political agreement that mainland China reached with a former KMT government, where they both agreed that there's, there is one China, but it's unclear on which side of the strait um, has the ultimate ruling authority. And there are kind of different interpretations of the, the details of this consensus. Uh, but in short, uh, Tsai Ing-wen refuses to uh, endorse this idea, but is still open to uh, political discussions. Well, finally, as you're in Washington, let me ask you one important question about how the US should handle the Taiwan issue. 
for a long time, there's been a policy of strategic ambiguity uh, based on the idea that China should keep guessing if the US military would fight for Taiwan in the face of an invasion. Is that still a valid position? And where do you think President Joe Biden stands? Well, ironically, President Biden's position on strategic ambiguity is itself a bit ambiguous. He said three times in public in response to questions from reporters that the United States would help to defend Taiwan if China attacked. And that would seem to be a move towards strategic clarity rather than strategic ambiguity. The White House in each of those occasions has subsequently added uh, statements saying that there's been no change in U.S. policy. And strategic ambiguity is also about under what conditions the U.S. would intervene in a war over Taiwan and what the nature of that intervention might look like. It does leave Beijing guessing, but also most analysts believe that China has priced in U.S. intervention. In other words, they assume that the U.S. will probably intervene. So the deterrence benefit is probably already there to some degree, while changing the policy now would be a major political shift. Finally, issues across the Taiwan Strait affect more than just Taiwan, the United States, and China. So maintaining the status quo, including strategic ambiguity, can help Washington internationalize the issue and garner more support worldwide for condemning China's aggressive actions that upend the status quo and undermine regional peace and stability. Well, thank you, Jacob. You've really helped us to see the political situation a lot more clearly, and I appreciate you sharing your perspective on this crucially important issue. That was Jacob Stokes, a fellow in the Indo-Pacific Security Programme at the Centre for a New American Security. He previously served as an advisor in the White House and the US Congress. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our activities, including our latest courses and research, on our website, soas.ac.uk. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.